welcome to Curious Objects, brought to you by the magazine Antiques. I'm Ben Miller. Today's episode is something new for me. It's a live special recorded from the Park Avenue Armory in New York City. You'll hear from a panel of young people in the world of antiques, including yours truly. We got together at the Winter Show, one of the foremost antique shows in the world, to talk about collecting, learning, research, craftsmanship, and the future of the decorative arts. We had a lot of ground to cover. This was also a launch event for a new group of young enthusiasts called the New Antiquarians. Stay tuned for more info about that. On the panel are myself and my fellow organizer, Michael Diaz-Griveth, the Associate Executive Director of the Winter Show, Carly Queenth, Head of European Glass and Ceramics at Christie's New York, and Emily Bodie, designer and founder of the fashion label Bodie, who repurposes vintage and antique textiles as contemporary menswear. First word from our sponsor. Have you ever wondered who was the master of the embroidered foliage? Or wanted to know what it was like to be at Andy Warhol's factory? Freeman's America's oldest auction house tells the stories of these and other curious objects. Discover Pennsylvania's craft legacy. Go behind the scenes at auctions and exhibitions and uncover your passion for collecting. Visit freemansauction.com to sign up for their newsletter and get these stories and more delivered straight to your inbox. Michael. Would you please start us out by telling us a little bit about this group, the New Antiquarians? Sure. Um, And first, I'd like to welcome you all to the Winter Show. This is our 65th year. So you're here thinking about the future of antiques with us during our 65th anniversary Sapphire Jubilee, which I think is something very special. Um, And you're here because Ben and I began discussing an idea about a year ago, right? I think it's been at least a year. At least a year. Okay, two years ago. Um, To try to convene young professionals in the arts and design around topics related to the antiques trade, the museum world, all of the issues we face as young professionals in the field in order to create a feeling of, of solidarity and a forum for discussion about really the future of antiques, historic art, material culture, these fields that deal with history that we are really passionate about and that some think are on the decline. We don't think they're on the decline. We know from our experience that the future of antiques is bright and we kind of wanted a space to discuss topics around that future with other like-minded people. So that's what we're trying to kick off. So here we are in this Herder Brothers designed room uh, right in front of one of the great antique shows in the world. And I'm thrilled to see uh, how many faces there are here. This is really just a delightful experience. I want to kick off by starting with the focus of, of what we're all interested in, which is objects. And that's what all of this revolves around, um, is the particular objects and the stories that uh, can be told about them. And so just to, um, to start us off, I wanted to ask each of, um, each of the panelists here about an object that you have in your possession, which is meaningfully t- to you in some way. Um, so Carly, would you like to, to start? Sure. Um... Thinking about the objects that are most meaningful to me personally are 
they, they seem to be objects that have been passed down through my family. So just the other day, I was making cookies, and I have um, a set of aluminum measuring spoons that belong to my grandmother, and just using them, I don't know, gives me a sense of generations past, and even though she was a terrible cook. Um, but I love things that have passed down through my family, and those are the ones that I treasure the most. I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I, you know, I didn't grow up in the antiques business. I stumbled into it completely by accident, and so I, you know, I wasn't surrounded by antique objects as as a kid. Um, and I've had to feel my way into what I like and, and what's meaningful and important to me. And so one such object, which I bought um, early after entering the, the business of antique silver, which is my day job, I bought a little teapot at auction, which is uh, just a little over 100 years old. It's not a particularly exciting or valuable thing. You know, it wouldn't pass vetting at the winter show. Sorry. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I, can't hold you responsible for that, Michael. Was it ceramic? It's silver. Yeah, yeah. So I do keep it polished. And it's, I wish I, I, I should have brought it here, but um, it's a bizarre combination of periods and styles and ideas. There are Rococo elements, there are Art Deco elements. It was made by an American firm that never made hollowware, they only made silver flatware. So this was far outside of their wheelhouse. They had no idea what they were doing. And I just love the idea that somebody could, without any preconceptions, without any formalized training necessarily, come up with an idea for some new kind of object, something that hadn't been in anybody's life previously, and bring it into our lives, and now 100 years later into my life. I feel like my object that I, I mean, that comes to, top of my mind right now is kind of a mesh between both of what you guys said. I've always wanted my family heirlooms, or all of my heirlooms have been what I probably would have thought of, like my mother's sweaters and my grandfather's bow tie collection, but recently I bought my first quilt as a like part of my personal collection um, that I had read about, and it had been my iPhone background for I think about a year before I bought it. <laughs> and I, that act of buying something that I had loved for so long, but it didn't have necessarily like an heirloom quality, like in my own family, um, kind of like sets it apart. It's like the first time I cherished something that wasn't part of my family's. Well, I really connect to that because um, <laughs> my, my mother's mother was an antique dealer, and my mother hated her mother, so when she... <laughs> inherited a pink tractor trailer full of antiques from her, she promptly sold them all. She hated that they smelled of smoke and they reminded her of her childhood. And so I grew up in houses that were fill, filled with average suburban furniture, you know? Things that my parents had gone out and bought because they were fashionable in Alabama in 1989 or 1994. So I didn't have heirlooms because they had been cast, they'd been auctioned off actually. And since I began collecting a few years ago, I've been kind of constituting my own collection, something that I may pass on um, to my children or friends or family in the future. Um, and 
one of my favorite objects I've spoken about on Curious Objects. It's a watercolor. I love this picture. Yeah, that I love. And um, it's, it's from a portfolio that was owned by a medical student in 18th century Germany. And what's special about it, I mean, I just love the way it looks. And that really matters, you know? It gives me joy to look at it. But it belongs to a family of watercolors that were spread across the globe from the same portfolio. And so I'm also a part of this kind of global family of people who've collected those sheets from the portfolio. And I just, I love that. I love to think that while it would be lovely for that portfolio to be intact, it's kind of just as cool that all of these people share one piece of a greater puzzle. So Michael, when you walk around the floor of an antique show like the Winter Show, what is it that you're looking for? What, what are you trying to find? Do you have uh, galleries that you zero in on and go straight for? Do you have genres that you're looking for? Do you wander aimlessly until something grabs your eye? How, how do you approach that? Well, I, I can't be totally frank because we're at the winter show, right? So I love all of the galleries equally. I love watercolors. They're, they're easy to collect. That's something I'm focused on at the moment, my personal collecting. But I just love that you go out onto the show floor and find decorative arts um, of the highest quality from you know 5,000 years of human culture and history. And one thing I've become really interested in as I attempt to you know, speak to more and more young collectors to sort of find out what makes them tick is that while quality really matters, and it, and it does, and the winter show is a vetted show, so we care about quality, we think a lot about authenticity, date, condition at this fair, um, Finding objects that just speak to you, that are weird maybe, or very, very particular to your sensibility, and you know, homing in on them, developing a relationship with the object and with the exhibitor who's selling the object is, is kind of, I think, my focus increasingly, and I think it's the focus of other young collectors I speak to. There's not a sense that, okay, I've started collecting one kind of material, now I need to create a sequential collection where I build it in a particular way that someone else has told me is the right way. Instead, I find that you know, if my eye alights on one thing, I begin learning about it, I begin listening to exhibitors tell me stories about it, and over time, you know, I develop my own kind of collecting narrative. And sometimes it's really eclectic and it takes me from you know, an object that was produced in Vienna in 1910 to a Biedermeyer object that it was inspired by, right? And, and that's what's fun about the collecting journey, I think. Yeah, every object is a rabbit hole. Yeah. And you can dive down infinitely. Sources of inspiration, materials, craftsmanship. Mm -hmm. um, Carly, what's, what's your experience? We were just walking around the, the floor and of course, your uh, area of specialty is, is ceramics. Um, there are a few dealers at this show who specialize in ceramics, mm -hmm. and there are a lot of dealers who don't. Um, what is it? Your professional life is completely full of antique porcelain and glass objects. Outside of work, outside of your job, if there is such a thing, 
what do you, what do old objects mean for you? What niche do they fill in your life? As you walk around the show floor here, um, what is it that draws your attention and what do you think about uh, outside of um, Kangxi tankards and that (laughs) that sort of thing? Um, Well, when I come to an antique show, first I look for interesting objects. Um, I love innovative displays and I really like the dealers to be friendly. I feel like when you walk into a booth, especially if you're trying to get young people more engaged with these objects and find new collectors, with, with, if the dealers aren't welcoming, it's very off-putting. Whereas if you had taken the time to speak to them about something that they were looking at and tried to show them what was interesting or cool about it, they might become a collector one day. If, and you, you never know if somebody might have the money to spend now um, if you'd only taken the time. Um, outside of work, <laughs> uh, I, my poor husband has been dragged around the world. I feel like every holiday becomes a ceramic holiday, <laughs> <laughs> intentionally or not. <laughs> I, I find a way to make it a ceramic holiday, but it is, because like, I really enjoy these objects and learning about them. So, yes, we're traveling through Spain, and but there's a lot of historic houses that you can see in Spain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, there's an amazing tile museum in Lisbon. And there's, there's all sorts of these other things that um, can really color a place. I don't know. When I, when I go someplace... And, and of course, your Instagram followers are the beneficiaries of that. Because we I get to see so. that... Yeah, I so. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like my the, the boundaries of my... Um, exposure to your field expand anytime you go on a trip because I, I see all the things that you're looking at. Well, I love looking for the strange and unusual in ceramics and just pointing out um, things people might not have noticed about more run-of-the-mill ceramics. So. Right. Mm. Um, Emily, I want to ask, because, you know, we're, we're talking a lot about objects and their histories uh, and aesthetics are clearly important and and provenance is clearly important, but what, what you do with antiques is um, much more direct uh, because you are actually uh, a craftsman, um, if I can use that term, or you know, you, you, you're the one who's taking the objects that we are all looking at and actually make, making something uh, new out of them. So I, I want to ask, where did that idea come from? Where, what was your inspiration for... Um, for working with these old materials as opposed to uh, taking modern fabrics and, and trying to come up with designs that work for them. Yeah, I feel like initially, I mean, I was raised going to antique shows and kind of having um, that connection started at a young age. I My parents collected antiques, my grandparents collected antiques, but it became more of like making from antique textiles, probably in college. Uh, every muslin, which is the first shape of a final garment, I was making out of fabrics that weren't throwaways, essentially. So when I knew that I wanted to start my own brand, I made a pair of trousers from a quilt top that I had saved. I had collected fabric since I was little, and I kind of had a collection already going. And when I made this first sample as a mock-up, I realized this is what got me most inspired. You know, it's creating a wardrobe for someone that has that intrinsic quality to it that you you get from buying vintage or antique clothing or collecting antique objects, but you can do it in a modern way. Um, It's kind of like initially where it came from. But my relationship to kind of what you were saying, a lot of 
what draws you to collecting are the people that are selling. Yeah. It's the dealers that I've known for years, and each collection that I do kind of is in, involved in one way or another with that relationship to another person. Let's back up for a second here, take a couple of steps backwards, zoom out. Michael, um, tell us what, what the definition is, is of an antique. Because we, 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 different people will obviously give you different answers, right? Legally, yeah. it's you know objects that are 100 years old or more, um, but I think colloquially, that's not really how most people use the term. So, what what does that what does the word antique mean to you? Well, it's it's funny you ask because uh, today I was actually thinking about the word vintage, which we don't discuss much around here because we're dealing with material that is the best of the best, to use the Winter Show's old tagline. And traditionally, that material has been antique material, you know, 100 years old or older. Now that the show's datelines have expanded, our focus is on quality, always. And that means that we have to think about standards of authenticity, of quality, for material that may be 50 years old or 10 years old. And... Um, for me, that's really kind of, it, it's opened up my way of thinking about objects because whereas before I thought about the disciplinary categories that the show works with, you know, porcelain has certain, the field has certain standards and they're very important, right? And, we, and we're think, if we're thinking about silver, we need to know our marks and to, there are very specific things we need to know about to comprehend that discipline. That's what, you know, connoisseurship is. But as we look at objects on a more trans-historical timeline, I think we can, we can think about their intrinsic qualities in a slightly more creative way, which is really what I think Emily is doing. Um, so while I happen to love objects that, that are antique, I mean, I'm, I'm pa passionate about the 18th and 19th centuries. I've, I'm finding that over time, my tastes are only becoming more and more open and eclectic. And I think that that happens when you, know, you begin to really see objects and craftsmanship and artisanship for what it is. And you begin to appreciate it in, in all things, no matter when they're from. So you know, the, the traditional definition of antiques still matters. We need to be able to think about why something is important because of the period in which it was produced, because it has survived, because it has been valued over time. All of that is relevant. But I'm also interested in thinking about how um, a compelling object can matter, whether it's 10 years old or 50 years old, 100 years old, or 5,000 years old. It's, it's an interesting idea that, you know, again, um, thinking about walking around the floor of the antique show, the there are dealers who have a very clear specialty, um, who have deep expertise in one specific and well-defined area. Uh, and there are dealers who have two or three areas of expertise, of specialty. There are also dealers whose inventory comprises objects of all different categories. Yeah. Um, and that to me is very intimidating, the notion that you could actually know enough about a wide variety of, of uh, subfields to be able to buy and, and sell those pieces, to be able to identify uh, fakes and forgeries, to be able to mm. tell the difference between a B plus piece and an A plus piece. 
Um, and yet, <clears throat> sometimes those are also the most interesting stands to visit because you never know what you're going to find and because you see objects juxtaposed that you would never have thought to put next to each other. And after all, that's how we live, right? We don't uh, decorate our houses with just 18th century English silver. Maybe we should, <laughs> but most of us don't. And, um, and so to a certain extent, we all, at least as collectors, I think we have to have some notion of, at the very least, what we like across different fields and across different periods. Yeah. And, um, and so I, you know, I, I, I wonder, I mean, Carly, what, what are your thoughts about this? Because you, know, you are a person who has very deep expertise in, in um, well, I, I guess European ceramics and glass is actually a fairly wide range of, of objects. But you also, of course, see thousands of objects from outside that world every day. And so, well, I don't know if you see thousands of those objects every day, but <laughs> you, you see plenty. Um, do, you, do you feel that your knowledge of these um, related disciplines or peripheral disciplines, is that enhanced by your study of your main field? Do you ever feel that you want to just leave the ceramics behind and go and you know, learn about, uh, about 18th century pictures? Or what, um, you know, how do you relate to things that are sort of outside of your, your focus area? Well, I do love 18th century pictures, too. I think it's, it's nice to have, even if your focus is one thing, For I love ceramics, I think it's important to know the context in which those pieces were made. And so you can't just know about the ceramics of the 18th century or the 19th century. You need to know about the social history of the period and about all the other decorative arts that would have gone, gone along with it. So you understand that, oh, you're you'd be looking at this plate and this chair by candlelight, and this was going on in history, and this is why the design is like this, and all these sorts of things. So I don't think you can look at it in a vacuum. I think you... I think even if you have a specialty, you're naturally curious about all the other subjects that surround it. Now, sorry, go ahead, Mike. I was just, I've been admiring on Emily's Instagram feed, which is like my main way of knowing you until today, um, that your brand sells Lassie cups, right? Like oh, vintage yes, Lassie yeah. cups. And I was just wondering how, we, we know you for the way you've worked with quilts and textiles producing garments, but your brand clearly encompasses increasingly a sort of broader world of objects. Can you speak to that at all? Um, I feel like it's... Yeah, I mean, that came just from, it was more so around the holidays and trying to have something that people could shop still in the world that we're trying to evoke and create with Bodhi, um, but not necessarily by a full garment. Mm -hmm. um, I think in terms of categories, we've expanded in making other goods, but it's also I enjoy sharing those findings. You know, I, that's a dealer that I've bought from for a while, and I wanted to share those cups, um, which they're all engraved brass. I love it. Yeah, kind of from like the 1940s, and to be able to share that story just as much as sharing, you know, maybe story of fabrics is equally as important. Mm. And Emily, how do you feel, you know, one of the interminable questions that we antiques and decorative arts people are constantly asked and constantly ask ourselves is, well, you know, um, how are we going to make what we do appealing to new generations? Um, there's a lot of 
talk of doom and gloom and how there's, you know, we're all going to go out of business, right? And Michael and I don't think that that's true. Um, but I wonder, Emily, how, you know, we, we live in a, in a fast fashion world. Um, we, uh, you know, Americans throw away enormous quantities of clothing every year. Um, we don't necessarily treasure our textiles in the way that people might have when textiles were much more expensive than they are today. Uh, and I think you could say the same about any number of types of objects that we have in our lives. Um, I don't need to mention Ikea. And so I, I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, the pieces that you make, um, in, in some cases, you can only make one, right? Right. Because you can't just go order more of this, this you know, 19th century quilt. Um, so uh, how is it that, I mean, how, how does what you do sort of compare with the world or, or fight against or play alongside the, the world of, um, uh, of fashion labels that are trying to turn over our wardrobes as, as quickly as, as we can? Yeah, I've, initially, I mean, the foundation of the brand was dealing with just the antique textiles. And I had realized that we don't store domestic textiles like our parents or even our grandparents or um, there are quite a bit of them, you know, there's linen closets full of embroidered linens and bed sheets and that's, we continue to make the antique one-of-a-kind pieces, but in terms of scaling our business, we've begun to embroider them in India and make our own patchworks and that's one aspect of becoming, you know, part of the fashion industry as a whole in that sort of sense and then um, it's to me it's more about making individual objects that's what was so attractive to me about these antique pieces um, and making one piece that people would buy into and pass along and save and keep it or call as you know call heirlooms uh, that are in a timeless shape so it's not necessarily following fast fashion and trends it's it's could be trendy but it's more about creating a garment that you could put in the on a guy in the 1940s and not be able to tell if it, like what era it's from you know still today it's kind of these the silhouettes are speak more to like the timelessness right I, I mean I just love the idea of being comfortable with the, the daily use of old materials absolutely and it's something that um, as, as a dealer you know I, I can't tell you the number of times someone comes into our shop or walks onto our stand at a show like this and says, oh, well, you know, I, I could never use that, that tankard. And I say, well, yes, you, you could. And if you buy it, I hope that you will. Um, because after all, that's what it's for. Um, that's what it was made for. That's the whole point of it. And which is not to say there aren't objects that belong behind glass and that are too rare or too delicate and too important and need you know, special preservation and whatnot. But um, generally speaking, the analogy I sometimes use is, is that you know, to put, say, a, a, a tankard behind glass and not use it is much like closing Notre Dame to worshipers because it's too important as a historical 
monument, which would, to my mind, just suck the soul out of it. The whole reason that building is interesting is that it's been in use for 800 years. And um, similarly, you take that tankard out from behind the glass, you put some beer in it, and (laughs) suddenly you're sharing in this 200, 300, 400 year lineage uh, to, to be a part of that, I think, is, is a really special thing. And, yeah. and for you, that's what you're bringing into people's everyday lives. And to, I, for us, I mean, it's, a lot of it is explaining to our customers, you know, you're not supposed to buy something, wear it once, or, you know, to mend your clothing and to keep it, same mm. thing. You know, you can't be scared that you're going to destroy something. It's, we have some people that buy it and they store it, you know, or they hang it on their wall. They just love it as an object. But for the most part, it's kind of teaching people to buy clothes in a way that you mend it and you can repair it and you can patch it if you have a stain or if there's a tear. You know, the, it's not finished if, um, if you feel like it's overused or something. Yeah. I mean, it's, in that sense, it's about sustainability as right. well as all of the sort of historic connections we've been making. I, I've, I keep hearing about this um, bumper sticker that says, Go Green, Buy Antiques. Yes. Yes. I don't know how true that is. But, uh, Depends on how many times you've shipped them. <laughs> Let's take a quick break. Before we hear again from our sponsor, I just want to thank everyone who's reached out with comments and ideas about curious objects. The more you tell me about what you want, the more likely it is I'll be able to make it happen. You can always email me at podcast at themagazineantiques.com or find me on Instagram at Objective Interest, where I also post pictures about the podcast. You might want to see the beautiful room where we had this panel, for instance. You can also help by leaving a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. Thanks so much. We'll get back to the conversation in just a minute. Would you like to learn how much the most expensive American looking glass ever sold at auction went for? Or to find out if your collection is appropriate for sale? Freeman's, America's oldest auction house, has the answers. Discover how Thomas Aiken's Gross Clinic stayed in Philadelphia. Delve into the work of Wayne Tebow, the great draftsman. And much more on their website, freemansauction.com. From modern masters to French furniture, Freeman's takes you behind the scenes at auctions and exhibitions, delivering the latest in art market news, events, and stories. Subscribe to their bi-weekly magazine and get it sent straight to your inbox. Visit Freeman's at freemansauction.com to learn more. Carly, you are you're in the, the fast and loose world of auctions. Um, there are, as we all know, there are trends. There are things that become exciting to the public and to collectors, and then there are things that seem to die out. Um, I'm not going to name any names. But, um, you know, well, I'll name a name. So (laughs) uh, we we all have heard tales of the demise of brown furniture. Um, Now, I think this is great news because I love brown furniture, and if it's cheap, that means I can afford to buy it. Uh, and in fact, I've, I've said that if I had a few million bucks to spare right now, I would buy a warehouse and fill it with 18th century English furniture because I can't really think of a better investment. And in the meantime, I get mahogany sideboards and tables and things. But um, the market is depressed. 
On the other hand, the market for contemporary American art is exploding. Um, we could go through a list of a uh, hundred different fields and you know, each one has its own trends. Are these trends, are, is there a cycle to them? Are they cycl?ical Are they, are there, um, you know, is brown furniture gonna be dormant and have a resurgence in, in the next decade? How do you think about those things? I think it is cyclical and I think it already is rising like yes. a phoenix from the ashes. Um, the, there are some hopeful signs. There, there have been very good signs. The brown furniture, which I assume we're talking about English furniture, did very, very well in our David Rockefeller sale last spring. We had a sale of uh, the Lyle collection last week and that did very well as well. I think some people just need a guiding hand on how you live with these things and I, and I think we're coming back around. I'm seeing more decorators using these types of objects. I love what Miles Red and Alex Papa Christidis and other interior mm -hmm. decorators are doing, mixing old with new. I love how at the show that they have these fresh modern wallpapers with the English furniture against it and it really makes it come alive and it's not like you're sitting in a stuffy period room. It look, you could actually see it in your living room and it looking really cool. And who are the tastemakers? I mean, who decides what's going to rise and what's going to fall, aside from us in this room? <laughs> I think it's interior decorators. I think it's um, design magazines. And I think it's people on Instagram. Yeah. People on I want Instagram. To, and this is where I plug our dealers again at the show, because we've framed them as storytellers and experts, and they are. But one of, one of the most compelling things about this year's show is the dynamic way in which our exhibitors have presented the material. And I know that Carly was talking about this out on the show floor and she has in this room. For someone who has the highest level of expertise in 19th century painted furniture or 18th century English furniture, who really knows their stuff, to also be able to say, and look at it against this crazy scalamandre wallpaper, look at how good it looks and look at how fun it is. Is, is to me the most, I don't know, there's just nothing more compelling because you have all the weight of their scholarship and their knowledge, but all of the, the benefit of their eye and their taste, which they've developed you know, over the course of their careers while looking at the best material and also seeing the best interiors, right? I mean, it's, it's always at a show like ours about how you might live with the material. Even if museums are here buying, you know, the majority of the buyers are still looking to incorporate these, this material into their own collections, into their homes. Um, and in a funny way, I feel like specialists have become some of the thought leaders in, in the world of design, especially as it relates to how we might design with antiques. And so it is, it is mostly the people in this room. <laughs> and, and out on the show floor. And out on the show floor. And, yeah. So, Michael, what, uh, speaking of the people in this room, what is, um, I'm going to ask a, a sort of double-sided question here. Um, what is it that people of our generation don't understand about the world of antiques that we should? And the other side of that is, what is something about our generation that the rest of the world of antiques doesn't understand about us and, and should? Yeah, okay. So to, to take the first part, I think it's really simple. I think you can find high-quality works that have fascinating provenance, that are in great condition, and that you're in love with. 
And I think you can, you can buy them. You can begin buying them now. If you do your research and you talk to dealers and you go to museums and you learn the material, you will be able to find viable objects that you can begin bringing into your own life. And I think Carly works with a lot of material that you know, any of us could begin collecting. And I love that about what you do. I, you know, I, can, I, I know we could start talking about you know, um, porcelain that I could probably. It's a wide variety. There's a wide variety. Points. And I could, I could lay it on my table next week. And I think that we have to begin thinking in that way, right, in order to do, you know, to, to do what Emily is doing and to enfold this, these objects into our daily lives so that this is what we think about instead of Ikea or Crate and Barrel when we need new plates. And so that's, that's the first step. And I don't think people realize that what the price points are, that you can have a 19th century dinner set for basically the same price as what you're registering for at an upscale department store now, or that you can have a very cool 19th century sofa in one of our interior sales um, at the same price point as, I mean, I don't want to name names, but you know. Uh, name names. <laughs> like restoration hardware or something yeah, like yeah. that. You know, yeah, yeah. You, you, there, we sell sofas for less than $3,000 and beautiful, fabrics and 19th century wood carving and you know I don't think people realize that for the same price point you could have something meaningful and that could be a talking point in your home and that is and that actually, will likely last it will last and that is I guess you could say it's green like we were saying before yeah. you know it's a form of recycling you're, you're a steward of this piece of furniture for its life and then it will move on to somebody else yeah. and to answer the second part of your question and I'm going to try not to get into trouble here. Um, I think that the greatest misconception about younger collectors, or just you know, younger people whom we hope become collectors, is that they're minimalists. False, 100% false. I think that the rising generation of aesthetes, people in the fashion world, people in the antiques world, have, a really, have an eclectic taste. I believe that to the depths of my soul. And I think that we're all a little bit traumatized by the Ikea wave, by, I mean, I love 90s minimalism, okay? And I love minimalist art. So this isn't, I'm, I'm kind of using these terms in a loose way, but to just use Ikea as kind of the baseline, I think we're all a bit traumatized by that look and about people sort of automatically moving to that 15 years ago as the baseline for an apartment. It's, it's college it, dorm room. It's college PTSD. dorm room, and, and it's over. And I, I do think that there was a generation of people who rejected their parents' antiques. I do. I've met so many people, like my mother, who just did not want to live with that material. But to speak to what Carly said, I think that fashion is cyclical. I think knowledge is cyclical. You know, certain things are passed down, some aren't, and they have to be rediscovered. And I think that you know, not just the world of antiques, but more complex aesthetic worlds and visual worlds are, are kind of being rediscovered right now by, by younger people. And I think that that's, we see that across music and fashion and the antiques world. You're here. We're, we're not minimalists, so. Okay, don't, don't be mad at me. <laughs> that doesn't describe Is anyone me. mad at Michael? <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I think that's a good note for us to wrap up on. I, I want to open up, in, in case there are any questions, uh, feel free to raise your hand and a microphone will be brought to you. At the sake of being a martyr, since I work in the museum industry, do you think that um, museums have a part to play in our generation's concept, concept of antiques not being useful and the sort of do not touch philosophy that goes along with these historic objects? I think that's a fascinating question. And it's actually, it's a regret uh, of, of both Michael and me that we don't have a person from the museum world up here um, tonight. I do think that um, you know, museums, as with antique dealers, are going through a, a period of readjustment right now uh, where we try to figure out who our new audiences are and how to relate to them. And um, there is, I think there is a sense in which um, previous generations might have been more comfortable um, approaching a museum with perhaps a more abstract kind of an eye and I to relating what they're seeing to what they remember from their college art history courses. And that people of our cohort are, um, you know, we want to know what these things mean to us. We want to know what the stories are. Um, we want to be able to, and I, I don't think that it's about um, expecting us to know more than we know. In other words, I don't think that the problem is that we don't that young people aren't sufficiently educated in art or art history or decorative arts. Um, I, I've been talking recently about um, this museum. Uh, some of you may know this, the Museum of Math, which is down by uh, Madison Square Garden, and they do this fantastic thing. It's organized as a children's museum, but. Each little display, which is usually some funky, interesting kind of gadget, right, has a little placard with a little description at a very basic level of what's going on. But then you can move on to the more detailed version of that description. And if that's not enough for you, there's an even more detailed version, which if you have a, a PhD in math, it really tells you what's going on behind the scenes and the, the equations that are at play. And for me, I, I, I find that a totally fascinating way of uh, interacting with an exhibit because you can dive in as deep as you want. You can read the story in as much depth as you want. You can learn anything that you want to learn. It's all there at your fingertips. And I, I've seen this at some art museums too, not in exactly that way, but frankly, I love um, mobile apps where you can walk into a gallery and download information where, you know, if you forgot that, that art history lecture, you know, now you can actually do that deep dive. It gives you the context, it gives you the story, it gives you something to relate to. Um, so I, I don't think that, you know, I think that museums um, can certainly find and explore new ways of, of relating, but I don't think it's a lost cause, and I, I don't think that, um, that there's any reason not to, uh, you know, forge ahead in those directions. What, what, what do you feel about this? I mean, I would, we're at the winter show, okay? So I would just say that one of the most exciting things about a fair like this is that you can see museum-quality objects before they're taken into private collections, whether they be the collections of collectors or museums. And so not really looking at the big-picture issues, but just at what we can do today, um, 
I love that if you go to the Winter Show or to Brimfield or to anti or to auctions <laughs> or to auctions because yeah, we're all in this world together. Um, you can touch objects, you can feel them, you can turn them over, you can engage with their material reality, with their surface, in a very tactile way. And I think you know that that our generation is interested in authentic stories. I think we're also interested in tactility because we're a digital generation that you know is kind of looking for other ways of experiencing reality, um, and that you know engaging with the art market allows one that kind of unmediated encounter with objecthood that museums have sometimes not allowed. I think increasingly they do. I think increasingly we're on the same page. But um, in the meantime, I definitely go to whatever venue will allow me to like turn things over and, and really get in there with the object. Yeah. And, and make no mistake, as long as the Metropolitan Museum of Art occupies the most valuable real estate in New York City, your museums will always have a role as um, sort of the, the, the focus of our cultural capital. Um, so, you know, attendance is not exactly shabby in a lot of, <laughs> a lot of museums around New York City. Um, so I, I, you know, similarly to the world of um, art and antiques, there's a lot of talking of doom and gloom about museums. I, I don't know that that's really the right attitude. I think there are certain shows that have really, I don't know, brought 18th century objects or 19th century objects um, to life, though, at museums that have done a, re a really nice job. Like, there was a show a couple of years ago at the Met, I think it was a fashion show, but it was in the 18th century galleries, and there were, like, mannequins of people, like, pushed up to, against each other, and, uh, like, in dangerous liaisons, and there was smashed porcelain yes. on the floor and overturned chairs, and it really sort of set made the scenes come alive versus when you just walk into a period room and it's everything is very staid. It sort of made you feel like you were in the 18th century. I also really love the Dennis Severs Museum for that reason. If you haven't been in London, it's fantastic. You have to go through this historic house in silence at night by candlelight and they there's you know, remnants of punch in the punch bowl, and there's creaking floorboards, and there's an actual cat that just lives in the house that's like lurking around. It really makes the period come alive, and you feel like you're moving through time in this house from the 18th century into the 19th century, and you get this appreciation of what these things would have looked like by candlelight, which you really can't do in a museum or an auction house. Or, or It's a really fantastic place, and I think when you can make things come alive like that, it makes more people interested and they, they, they wanna know more and they, they, I don't know. I think there are ways that museums can make things come alive that would be great and I think those are two good examples. All right, well we took a very long time to answer <laughs> We like um, the question. Can we do one, one, one more question? Thank you. Hi, thank you so much. Uh, so my name is Alison Vicenzi. I'm a clothing designer, and as of tonight, I'm a new antiquarian, so thank you. I'm excited to learn a little bit more about <laughs> what exactly that means. But um, I was wondering, just touching upon the last point that you brought up in the conversation about how price accessible antiques are and how many people would be surprised to hear that, I'm just curious, for those who um, maybe aren't in this room and don't 
and are overwhelmed by the thought of hunting for antiques, are there any specific resources that you recommend sharing both in person or online where you can find say homewares, like just to narrow in on a focus, like homewares where people could browse, shop, get it delivered, maybe like even I've, because I'm trying to convert people basically, <laughs> friends and things like this, and I think even like an entry fee to a fair is sort of one barrier that might get in the way, which is seems foolish because in the end you're getting a great deal on a unique item, but just curious if you've come across any resources that minimize the barrier to entry for those just getting started. Thank you. I feel like you have a really uh, active and interesting <laughs> shopping life in yeah. the realm of antiques. Um, I definitely, going to outdoor markets, I mean, it's weather prohibited, but like in the summertime I go to Brimfield, uh, knowing kind of when to go takes a bit of time, like a few times going. And I think when I first started going to auctions, that like changed my life as well. Like, I didn't know that I could just go to an auction. Um, and also making appointments with people. Like, now, to get yourself comfortable with reaching out to people on direct message that you like their collections and uh, private people that you would otherwise be scared to talk to, um, it's important to share and say, like, everyone's open to taking a meeting even if they're not sure, you know, how much you can spend. And It'll help educate yourself, and also they. Most of my contacts have come through my network. So it's once I meet one dealer at an outdoor market, he'll give me you know a whole slew of contacts all over the nation or in Paris or yeah, just creating that community and communication. I think is really important. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I I think that um, many many auction houses are making it easier and easier to explore their collections. So, um, you know, I, sp I spend a lot of time, of course, just in my professional life uh, scouring the auction houses, but I also spend time um, looking through auction listings for things that might be of interest to me. Uh, and I, I might look at a thousand things before I find something that I actually want to bid on. Yeah. But the other 999 are all teaching me something at the same time. And it's kind of fun. And, and if, yeah. if you're looking for something very specific too, a lot of auction houses. I know Christie's we do, but also on live auctioneers. Um, you can say what you're interested in finding, and it, and it will alert you if something comes up, um, which is helpful if you're looking for something yeah. specific. They're trying to make it very a easy. Price range, yeah. right? I mean, that matters, right? If you can't pay $30,000 for the set of plates that we were discussing earlier, you can really narrowly specify what you are willing to pay. Although I would say you should probably look at the $30,000 plates, too, just so you, you know where you are and what, what you that's, yeah. and th and that's where to over time. And that's where the winter show comes into the picture for younger buyers. We have this initiative on our Young Collectors Night now of marking objects at 10000 and below, 5000 and below, and 3000 and below. And for someone who's maybe 40 or 45 or 35, who's highly qualified, that's an entry point, and that's great. And we're trying to point out to them that, okay, everything here isn't a half million dollars or a million dollars. There's an object over there that's 2,500 or 5,000, and that's one entry point. Um, but for someone for whom that's not an entry point, the show is an education for the eye, right? And it's, it's the sort of classic connoisseurship test of, you know, good, better, best, right? So 
even if I'm collecting just at the good level for my own personal use at home, I need to know what's better and what's best, not from the perspective of taste, but from the perspective of quality or craftsmanship. I need to know what's out there in the market and what the range is. And you know, it means that whatever your budget is, it's never the wrong time to go to the winter show. It's never the wrong time to go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art to learn about an area that you may be interested in collecting in. You know, it's yeah, and and it's worth thinking about what these objects might be worth to you, because I think that um, you know one one thing that I uh, continually hear from uh, people of previous generations, shall we call them that, is that um, young people want experiences; they don't want objects. You know, they want to travel. They don't want to clutter up their tiny little apartments. And that's all well and good. But for me, that's not how I experience antiques at all. Because for me, they are experiences. They're experiences that I have every day. And if I can spend the amount of money that I would spend to take a weekend trip to some little you know, B&B somewhere, and instead buy a silver teapot that I can use every day and that which, which every time I use it, it means a little more to me because I've, I'm building a relationship with it and an understanding of it, then that's a trade-off that I think I'm, I'm very willing to make yeah. um, and that I would make again and again and again. I think even if you're not trading vacations, even if you're you know, buying dinner service from the 19th century that costs as much as one that is new, um, that's an experience. And it's you get to sort of travel back in time every time you use it. And when you have guests or friends over, you get to bring them into this experience as well. It creates a talking point um, when you have people over. It's, it's an experience. It's, it's, yeah. it's great. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you all so much for, for coming. This has been a lot of fun for me, at least. Thank you, to, thank you to Michael for helping to organize this and for participating. Thank you to Carly and to Emily. Thank you to The Winter Show for hosting us in this beautiful room. Thank you to the magazine Antiques for making this whole thing possible. Have a good evening. That's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Today's episode was edited and produced by Sammy Delati. Our music is by Trap Rabbit, and I'm Ben Miller. I'll catch you next time.